You'll see on the service sheet there's an outline that starts with this question. Is doctrine just dry? Is doctrine just dry? See, what do you feel when you hear the word doctrine? You may feel like it's dry, as if the thought of the word doctrine is the culinary equivalent of eating wheat bix without milk. You know, you try and get wheat bix in your mouth without milk, it's like, oh, really dry. Maybe you feel like that's what doctrine is like. You know, wheat bix, of course, is good for you. You know, it's meant to be good for you, but it's so dry, it's hard to enjoy. Maybe that's what you think doctrine is. At least, sadly, that is how doctrine is presented in some quarters of Christianity in this town. In this town. Sure, we'll be happy with some Bible. We'll even say we're Bible-based. That's cool these days. We'll tip our hat to some Christian songs. But sadly, we'll even pit those against doctrine. As if it's divided. As if you can be Bible alone and there's, you know, that's, that's, there's, no, there's no doctrine involved, there's no thinking, and there's no theology with the Bible. Some of us see doctrine as dry and unhelpful because we've actually never had a drink from the sweet fountain that is Christ full doctrine. We become masters of all sorts of things in our churches. We become masters of pragmatism, doing what works. We become masters of programs, rolling out things for all sorts of people that need things to be rolled out for. And yet, we don't become learners of Christ. What is a church, friends? A church is not an entertainment center. It's not even a play center. This was a play center, this building, by the way. A church is a learning community of learning Christ. Disciple means learner. It's to learn Christ. The Apostle Paul writes about the importance of sound doctrine in his letters. So a couple of times he says to Titus, for example, in the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Titus, he says to Titus that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now here's what I find fascinating. We hear that and go, that sounds all very good. That's just for the elders. But here's the thing, friends. He writes that for the church as well because the word sound can also be translated another way. Sound doctrine can be translated another way. I love this. See, we live in a world where we love to look after ourselves, don't we? We love our health. How do I know this? Because a lot of us wear the health watches. Where the watch tells you how healthy you are or unhealthy you are. Like Amy's got this watch that tells her if she's not walking enough or something. It's very discouraging. It can be very discouraging when your watch is criticizing you. You're supposed to just tell the time. Do your one job. But now we, see, we, we have those things because what we love to look after our health. We love a healthy lifestyle. At least we love the idea of a healthy lifestyle. Guess what word sound can be translated in for sound doctrine? Healthy. Friends, because bad, unhealthy doctrine makes you sick. Bad theology kills. It kills relationship with God. 
A few years ago, we were in a discipleship series called Healthy Doctrine Equals Healthy Church. Because it does. If you have unhealthy doctrine, if you're eating, you're feeding upon unhealthy doctrine, you'll have an unhealthy church. What does the word doctrine mean then? The word doctrine means what we believe and teach. Everybody's got a doctrine. So just before we start talking about thinking about indoctrination or whatever else, everybody's got doctrine. It's just simply what someone believes and teaches about the world. Educators have a doctrine. Teachers have a doctrine, what they believe and teach. Medical professionals have a doctrine. Whatever you do in your life, you have a way that you believe this works and teach it. It's just doctrine. And so in John's Gospel... When notice the reason for writing is now called to worship. What's the reason John writes his gospel? So that we may believe. Doctrine is about what you believe and teach because what you believe matters for your life and death. What you believe and teach matters in life and death. Your doctrine matters, friends. What you believe and teach is the heart of who Jesus Christ is particularly. Today in John's gospel in John 14, as Meg read, we are now meeting the triune God. And to be clear, it's possible that we could make this doctrine dry. I get about, I don't know, half an hour. I know I'm a bit pliable with time, but I get half an hour to speak about the Trinity. Do you think that's enough time? I don't think it is. I was saying to someone, one of our members was over at our place at the night, talking with Ames, and I said, I was reading these books late into the night because I got a rabbit hole. So, oh, it'd be good to talk about this and that. And, and look, we're going to talk about some things this morning and, and, and learn some things about the Trinity. But as much as we see it's a big thing to see, to, to not talk about the triune God, to not meet him, to not do serious learning of Christ, that belittles God. We can make doctrine boring. We can belittle God by ignoring it. I once heard a pastor in this town, I was in a, I was in a church service, right, fairly big church, and the pastor said mid-sermon, and I think he meant to say it to be cool, right, and try and like, yeah, we're all cool with that, but he said mid-sermon, you know, I'm not very much into theology. Now, that's like your mechanic saying, you know what, I'm not really into cars, you want your mechanic to be in the cars. It's like your medical practitioner. Imagine your mid-surgery and your medical practitioner or your GP says mid-examination, you know what, I'm looking at this sore on your arm. I'm not really into medicine. I want you to be into medicine. I actually want you to be into theology. If you are a pastor, an elder, a preacher, you want that preacher to be into theology. The study of God, the learning of it, you need them to be. Because if they're not, they'll shipwreck your faith. We want a healthy church. As we meet the triune God, I want to acknowledge straight out the gate that um, people will say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. People will say, the triune God, you know, you won't see that phrase in the Bible, but. From beginning in the book of Genesis to the end, we see the triune God, we meet him everywhere in the Bible. Just this morning, Jesus brings it up clearly in one chapter and talks about him. And what we see is, although you won't see the word Trinity in the Bible, the Trinity is not a made-up doctrine. There's not a made-up Godhead, as we've sung. 
You can look in ancient Egyptian religion and find multiple gods, maybe even a, a threeism of a god. But it's not the same as triune. It's not the same as the Trinity. In fact, every human-made conception of God is never like the triune God. Because the Trinity, the triune God, is a revealed nature, a revealed doctrine of God. We don't make it up, it's given to us. It's here in John 14. John 14's got a context, of course. We saw last week that context, but if you look in your Bibles in John 13, just at the end of John 13, there's a conversation happening. It's that, it's that night before Jesus betrayed. The conversation's getting real. Jesus is about to die. It's an ongoing dialogue. And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where are you going? Because they get the vibe that Jesus is going somewhere. Where are you going? And Jesus says, you can't follow because he knows he's going to the cross. And Peter's like, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come with you. I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, will you? Look in verse 38, John 13, 38. Will you lay your life down for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you denied me three times. Jesus has been speaking about his impending death, the betrayal of Judas, the denial of Peter. And as he speaks about his impending death and him going away, can you feel it? The anxiety is building in the room. As Jesus, who's been with them, their Lord, their protector, their healer, their comforter, he's now saying, I'm going away. They're feeling anxious. And so Jesus says, John 14, verse 1, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me. He speaks about many rooms where he's going. You notice that tender imperative? It's a caring command. Let your hearts not be troubled. Don't get anxious, friends. And what follows is Jesus explains because he is going, because he's going to defeat sin on the cross, cross with his victorious resurrection, ascension as king as everything, he can say, surely... He's preparing a place in heaven for you. And yet Thomas, verse 5, is still troubled. Thomas says in verse 5, Well, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And here is where Jesus gives one of his famous I am statements. We saw last time and the time before, when he gives these I am statements, he's using the language that God revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush moment. I am who I am, or I'll be who I'll be. Jesus picks up the same language and says, I am. In other words, I'm God, and he says this to them. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you go to the toilet today, I know I said the word poo last week in a sermon. I haven't got any mail yet, but... I did, intentionally, it was in the notes. Go and listen to that sermon if you're wondering, what in the world was that about? Well, it's got some context. This week, the word toilet. All right, maybe this sermon should get a rating beforehand. If you go to our bathrooms, let's use that word, you go to our bathrooms, you'll notice on the wall there's a poster. And on that poster is a memory verse that all our kids' church are memorising, that our church could be memorising, and it's this verse. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Why do we need that as a memory verse? It's not just because we forget it. It's like, oh, I forgot what Jesus said about himself. Why do we need it? Why do we need to meditate on that? 
because we are so tempted to believe anything otherwise. We'd rather believe, no, there's got to be another, there, there is another way, isn't there? Like, if, if I'm a nice person, that, that's surely another way, isn't it? Like, or I just believe in God. We talked about this last time and the time before. But James writes, even demons believe and they shudder. Many Australians say they believe and they don't do anything. They don't even shudder. But Jesus says these words as a way of comfort to those who do believe. If you believe in me, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is teaching us that he is the way to get with God himself. You see, we live in a world of problems. You've got problems, I've got problems. We live in a world of problems. There is evil in the world. Why is there a war in the Ukraine? Why is there a war there? Why can't people be left alone? Why is it one man's bullying nature throws a whole bunch of people to their death and turmoil? It's because of sin. Why do you have problems in your wider family, in my wider family? It's because of sin. Why do I get things wrong often? It's because of sin. Why is there death? Because of sin. We saw in our Genesis series back at the beginning it wasn't like this. It's not the way God made things. He makes his creation good, 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 good. He keeps saying it's good. He makes us humanity and he says, oh, it's very good. And then what do we do? We say, yeah, I love your world, thanks, but I want nothing to do with you, God. And we give God the hand of friendship that is actually a backhand and we say, get out of my life. How's that going for us? How's it going for you? It's not going well. And ever since that beginning, where we were once with God, the garden with God was our happy place. Because God was there. We were with him. It was very good. But ever since the beginning, and we've ruined it because of sin, it's gone from bad to worse. And the only way back to God is, is nothing that we can do about it. We can't do it. We can't defeat sin. We can't defeat death. So here is the way, the truth, and the life. He has come to us personally in the person of Jesus Christ. Ever since the beginning, God promised he would. Ever since the curse, he said to Adam and Eve, through your offspring will come the saviour of the humans. He'll come, a human will come to rescue the humans. It won't be Skippy. I mean, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Anyone here understand what I'm talking about when I say Skippy? In the 80s, there was this series, Australian series, it was a kangaroo. It was our equivalent of... It's a she, thank you. That's very helpful. It's good to get things historically accurate. The Skippy was the equivalent of the dolphin, and I can't remember the dolphin's name. Flipper. It's going to say Flippy, but you know, Flipper, thank you. The animal comes to rescue. So it's, what's that, Skip? The bridge is going to fall? Oh, no. You know, like that kind of thing. And then we all, you know, same with the dolphin, Flipper, Flipper. But the animal can't rescue the humans, not with sin and death. A dolphin can't die on the cross for us, taking the wrath of sin. Kangaroo can't. The blood of bulls and goats will not suffice. It's got to be a person. And the person comes. The man who is God, Jesus Christ, he's perfect, he's innocent, declared innocent by a human court. Pilate finds nothing wrong with him. He comes to rescue us. 
He comes because he is the only way back to God. He is the truth. Only he can truly save. He is the life. The one who breathes life into the nostrils of Adam is the one who comes and gives life forever to those who believe. So when Jesus says, don't be troubled, friends, believe in me, he's giving us comfort. He's giving us comfort. He's telling us when our hearts are in turmoil, when they're troubled, when we're feeling alone, the world is against us, he is saying, believe, friends, believe. Look at God's promises in the person of Jesus and believe. Where sin ceases, barred from the garden, the Old Testament tabernacle, God dwelled in a tent and then in the temple. But there was a curtain between people and God. Now Jesus come, the curtain is torn and Jesus is the way forever into that temple, that garden city that is heaven prepared for you if you believe. Of course, the disciples struggle to understand this. Because at this point in time, they're thinking, look, if I could just geolocate Jesus, you know, like, could do kind of one of those things where, you know, he, I find the app and I find out where Jesus is. But Jesus is talking about spiritual things. The path to life forever is the cross. That's the way he will travel. Trust in Jesus and what he does on the cross for you is the only way to God. And friends, this is liberating because it clears up any confusion. You live in a world where you have a myriad of preachers preaching to you 24-7 a day. Because as soon as you pick up that phone, there are a myriad of messages from the world, from people and worldviews, and it would be understandable if you were confused as to what the world is about, what you believe the world is about, and where we're going. Jesus comes to clear up confusion. He's the way. How do you know this? Today, if you want to find the founder of Islam, where do you find the founder of Islam? Well, he's in a grave. You go and find that grave, and people do, and pay homage. You go, where do you find the founder of Confucianism? The ashes. You find, you find the founder of the major world religions, you find them in their graves or their ashes or all sorts of places. You won't find the founder of Christianity. He's not dead. He's alive. He proves he's the way by being the only one who goes to death and back. He's the way, the truth and the life. This is liberating, clears that confusion, and then Jesus says, he's more. Wow. Because when you see me, he says, you see the Father. The disciples struggle with this. Philip says in verse 8, the disciples are often asking the questions that we would ask. Philip says in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father, it would be enough for us. He wants to know God, he struggles with this. And, and Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long? You still don't know me. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. But Philip's just asking what people in the Old Testament asked again and again and again. We saw it in our cross-reference passage from Exodus 33. What did Moses ask? Remember that? He said, look, if you were to come with us, knowing how stiff-necked and sinful and complainy your people are, if you're going to hang out in the room for a while, then it's not going to live. But God is merciful and gracious and, and, and glorious. And Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see a picture of you. I want to know you intimately because you're amazing. 
But he only gets a glimpse. We see similar scenes for Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. People get a glimpse of God. They desire to know God, to see him. They get a limited vision. Yet with Jesus, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 19. Jesus has said, he's the one who makes the Father fully known. You see Jesus, you see what God the Father is like in character in every way. You see Jesus, you know the Father. Jesus says himself, no one has seen God but John 1, 18. No one has seen God but the only one who is God is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You see, when you meet Jesus, you meet the triune God. Here Jesus speaks about how he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. So look at verse 10, John 14, 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus teaching us that there is one God, three distinct persons. Three persons in one God. We sing this as our part of our catechisms, don't we? Our children learn this. How many persons are there in God? You know, the American accent, because you know, it's stuck in my head because we sing it, I listen to it. There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son. I'll stop singing. You get the picture. We sang it here, the Godhead, three in one, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Jesus speaks here and shows us who the trying God is. He even shows us how they relate. We see at the end of John 14, in verse 28, he says, I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Then verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may rejoice that I love the Father. Now, people get confused at this point. How can the Father be greater than Jesus? Does that mean they're not equal? Is there a sense of they're not equal for a period of time or Jesus on earth, and then eternally they're equal? Well, Jesus here is teaching us about the triune God. He teaches us when we meet the triune God, we see that there is this, within the Trinity, Jesus is willing to submit to the Father in his mission to go to the cross. Jesus obeys the Father, showing his love for the Father. But we see that Jesus revealing in the earthly ministry of Jesus, often called the economic Trinity, he's revealing who the Trinity is and what he does. But we also see in Jesus' words that in the what's called the imminent trinity, I'm going to explain it in a minute, ontological trinity, in the trinity that always is, always will be, there is one God, three persons, co-equal, and to be worshipped and glorified, like we read in the Nicene Creed. Now, everyone's at this point going, yeah, I did think doctrine was dry. Um, <laughs> I can understand why I've used some words and I've explained things about the Trinity that you think, well, that just went a bit high. A bit high. Let's actually see what this means for us now. Theologians often speak about the economic Trinity. It comes from, comes from a Greek word, oikos, from the word house, household, economic. It doesn't mean like the fiscal statement. It means the household, the relationships. The way in which the Trinity relates, particularly as you look at Jesus' earthly ministry, the way that Jesus speaks about how he willingly goes to the cross submitting to the Father. But theologians are also 
very keen, we are very keen, particularly in Reformed theology, to point out there is no such thing as an eternal subordination of the Son. Now, why does that matter? Anyway, why are we talking this? Because some people in recent years have made a point of saying, look at the Trinity, and that's how male and female operate. And that, my friends, is wrong. Male and female, husbands and wives, do not relate model on the Trinity. Um, Some people have made that statement and wanted to make it that way, but it's not what the Bible teaches. There is no eternal subordination. They are co-equal. And as we see the Trinity revealed to us, if you want to talk about households and, and male and female or churches, you actually look at Ephesians 5 and Christ and the church. We don't look at the Trinity. Because going in the direction that says Jesus is lower than God the Father, or God the Son is lower, or always like it, it, it is in this sense eternally like that, actually changes our understanding of one God, three persons, co-equal to be worshipped and glorified, all three. Jesus teaches us there is one God, three distinct persons. They're not different, they're equal. We confess in the Nicene Creed that he is Jesus, one being with the Father. We believe the Father, Son and Spirit to be worshipped and glorified, yet at the same time Jesus revealing, teaching us there is an order of relationships here. The three persons are still one essence, yet distinct in the voluntary, willed ways they work. Notice this, we see it in John 14. The Father works by doing what? Sending the Son. And the Son and the Father work together by sending the Holy Spirit. There is this order and relationships that is revealed to us, and we need to hold two things together in summary. There is one God, three persons, all equal, all to be worshipped and glorified. And yet we see, revealed to us, this order in relationships, particularly in the way Jesus speaks here and what he does at the cross. But that doesn't mean that because Jesus becomes lower in humiliating himself comes to earth, it doesn't mean he's less God. And why does it matter finally? Because when you meet Jesus, you meet God. When you meet Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see the Father. Philip struggles with this. I can understand if you do too. But when you see Jesus, you see the Father. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff you could read on this. If you want to read, we could read Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. We've got his books at home. We could read Hodge. You could read all sorts of uh, theologians. Bavink is quite helpful as well. Westminster, larger catechism, sections 9 and 10. But in the end, look at Jesus' words. Look in John 14. And I want you to look at those words... And let it be okay that it bends your brain. Is that okay? I've got friends, um, Muslim friends, who want to speak about one God too, but when they come to the Trinity, and my Jehovah's Witness friends are the same, they can't comprehend this. So they, they can't be three in one. It's impossible, it's mathematically impossible for there to be three in one. And all sorts of illustrations never suffice. The cloverleaf thing doesn't work. Water, ice and steam doesn't work. That's modalism. That doesn't work. Any human illustration we have never fully explains and does justice to the Trinity. And it should bend our brain. Why? It's good that it bends our brain. Why? Because God is bigger than you. 
If you can get God and put him in a little box of understanding and say, I understand, I've mastered understanding God, your God is too small. He's smaller than you now. The creature has become bigger than the creator. But it should bend our brain. We should look at the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity and not go, this is dry and boring, and not go, I don't understand that, so I don't need to worry about it. We should look at the doctrine of the Trinity, our triune God when you meet him, and marvel and worship because he's God. That's the end result. Like I said earlier, theology leads to doxology. And if you know what that means, ology, study of, like ontology or... Uh, I'm trying to think of other ologies. Someone help me out. Psychology, thank you. It's good to have that crowd interaction. Congregational help. Theology, the study of God. Doxology, doxos means glorify or praise. Praising God. To study theology leads to doxology, to the praise and glory of God. It doesn't lead just to more knowledge. Or putting God in a box, it means, wow, God is bigger than me. He's to be worshipped and glorified and enjoyed, friends. And then Jesus speaks of the works of God. Throughout John's Gospel, we see these works include the signs of Jesus, the miracles, the ministry of the Messiah. And Jesus says, if you believe in me, verse 12, whoever believes in me will do these works that I do, and greater works he'll do. If you ask anything in my name, Jesus is saying, I will do it. Now, Jesus, what is he teaching us here? He's teaching us, because of the finished work of the cross, and because of the power of the Holy Spirit whom he sends, we'll be abled now, emboldened now, to see the power of God go into the world. What is the power of God? It's the gospel. That's the game changer. Friends, we live in a world where we think the game changer is something else. We tend to think if we just had a more entertaining church, if we had more, I don't know, facilities of something, or maybe we had video games, or whatever it is, a better preacher, maybe, a good-looking one, or whatever it is. You know, we, we, we're so tempted to look at the external to think that would then change everything. We just had more interesting people. That's not the power of God. The power of God is the gospel. Power in weakness. Power in the ignoble. Because that shows this is only a supernatural thing. Jesus says, you better do greater works. You'll be able to provide people with compassion, minister the gospel in a myriad of ways, even pray in his name. Because Jesus teaches us, we get to have the Holy Spirit with us. Jesus teaches us, verse 15 onwards, about God the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 15, verse 16, and I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit was always present with God's people in the Old Testament, but he did distinctive works in particular ways. Would come over a king and fulfill a king to, to do his work. But now since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come, been poured out in a new and powerful way, and he is that other helper, advocate or counsellor who dwells in believers. And verse 17 significant for us to see. I want you to look at verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and be within you. What am I, why am I pointing this out? Clearly Jesus is saying this. If you don't believe in Jesus, you don't get the Holy Spirit. 
Believers in Jesus get to have the Holy Spirit. Believers in Jesus get to have that experience of God with us, dwelling in us. And therefore we want to obey him, we want to submit to him, we want him as Lord of our life, every part of our life. And notice that when you meet the Holy Spirit here in John 14 and throughout the Bible, notice he's introduced as he, none of this it business, he's not a power, he's a person. He's a person of the Godhead. That's significant because when he enables and empowers and helps us, he's doing that personally. And he comes to comfort us because we live in a time where our hearts are often troubled. So John 14, 27, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Our world has a sort of peace that wants to have, but it's always fragile, isn't it? It's always broken. But the sort of peace Jesus gives is that same Old Testament kind of peace of shalom, Right relationship with God personally, a peace with him you can experience by being saved and having the indwelling spirit in you. So what does this now all mean for us? What does it mean for you as you meet the triune God here in John 14? Is doctrine dry? Is what we believe and teach about God dry in the day-to-day of life? No, it's actually deeply personal on a daily basis. It's real and it's really life-changing. What difference would meeting the triune God make to your life today? What difference would it make to our church life? I think this. Our doctrine shapes our devotion to God. Yes, we need to be true in our doctrine and what we believe and teach and be precise about things like the economic and imminent trinity or ontological trinity. It's important to be precise. But the ultimate end of that is not just to be precise or to know things, it's to worship. And to worship God the way he's revealed himself through Christ. Because the human mind, your mind, my mind, is so tempted to ignore this. What do we do instead? We imagine what God is like. You had those conversations? I think God is like this. But I think God is like this. I imagine God would think this. I imagine God would think this. That's like talking about someone else or someone talking about you and they never asked you what you think. They never listened to you. God wants us to listen to him and his word in the Bible. And by the way, the word imagine, which has proper use in context if we're imagining our lives ahead. But if we're going to imagine about God, the word imagine is very closely linked to the word image. And if we're going to imagine what God is like, we're going to be making an image of God. And we should never do that. Because that ignores actually who God is. He's the way, the truth, and the life. That's how he's revealed himself. So what differences does it make for our doctrine and devotion? Well, friends... So you know we are finishing, and I know it's a danger when preachers say that, but three things. Here's what I'm going to do. Three things which I hope will be memorable for us and what the difference this makes for our doctrine and devotion by using Jesus' phrase, the way, the truth, and the life. Here's three things, the way. When you meet the triune God, the difference this makes is 
There is no other way you can be saved from the evil and death in this world. It used to kind of trouble me when churches have a sign at the front say, this church is the hope of the world, or church is the hope of the world. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus is the hope of the world. The church has that message, but Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the way. There is no salvation without Jesus, which means, by the way, friends, there's no salvation without the Trinity. This is especially in contrast to human-imagined gods. There is a big worldwide religion. I've mentioned it before. But it says God is merciful and just. That's okay, except how do you know? Because if he's merciful, you won't get what you deserve for your sins. But then if he's going to be just, you do get what you deserve for your sins. So how do you know? Are you going to get it or not? There's no actual knowledge of salvation. And if you ask a person of that world where religion are you going to heaven, they'll say, I don't know, because I'm waiting to see if he's going to be merciful and just. But with Jesus, because he has come, the Trinity means you can be assured of your salvation because God is just because the judge gets judged on the cross, which means he is merciful to you. How do you know he's going to get, you're going to get mercy? Do you believe in Jesus and his death on the cross? You get mercy. It's assured. Secondly, the truth. We live in a world where your family and friends, where my family and friends, my wider family and friends, think it's nice to say all religions are the same. The reason they say it is because they think it's nice. They think it's a nice thing to say because no one wants conflict. Look, if you get to know me, I, I hate conflict. <laughs> I'm a shy person. I dislike conflict. So I don't want conflict. So I was like, yeah, all right. It's so tempting to say all religions are the same, isn't it? All religions are the same. Let's not criticize. All, all the gods are the same. The problem with that is twofold. One, it makes no sense. And two, it's a lie. And in fact, if you ask major religions, including the other major religion in the world that's three doors down with a new building going, you ask them, oh, all religions are the same, aren't they? They would think that's offensive. They don't believe they're all the same. That's why they do what they do. It's a lie, friends. And moreover, it's not just because other religions see it as a barefaced lie, it's because Jesus says it's a lie. (laughs) Jesus shows us here the truth is revealed. There is no other option. There is no other God. It's the triune God and he has come to reveal him. Also, by the way, I know postmoderns want to say it because it's nice, but you go and ask a postmodern, do you like being lied to? Even postmoderns don't like lying. Everyone wants truth and justice these days. Look at Twitter. That's the truth. And lastly, it's the life. God comes to you so you can have life forever. So whether you're a teenager and you're kind of treading out into life, trying to work it out, or a person in midlife wondering, what's this all for? Or perhaps you're a person in your sunset years, or you're facing a diagnosis that means the rest of your months or days are unsure. You want in your troubled heart something to actually hold on to. Not just some ethereal kind of uh, sort of platitudes. Not some programs. Not some pragmatism. You want theology that actually has something to hold on to for your life forever. You want doctrine that will actually 
give you hope. That's the triune God. He is the life, Jesus says. It means our doctrine shapes our devotion because when you believe in him and we teach him to others, they need to meet him too. This changes everything for us. It changes our church life. It means our church is not detrimentally determined on how fun it is. It's good to have fun, isn't it? Like, let's not go to morning tea going, are you having fun? No. It's good to have fun in church. But the fun is incidental because of our fellowship with God. That's what's key. That's what's detrimental. A church is not a place of entertainment. It's a learning community. A church is not a play centre. It's a place of devoted prayer and word ministry. A place of meeting God and worshipping him. A church is not in need to follow trends, but to teach about the God we can follow because we've met him in Jesus. Let's pray in his name. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful to you that you, God, sent your Son to show us, to bring us to you by showing us who you are and saving us anew and for right relationship. Thank you we get to experience you now in that close quarter care by your Spirit who dwells in us, in us individually, in us who are reforming, who are the church. We thank you we got to meet the triune God. We pray that many more will get to meet him too knowing that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you and ask, because Jesus says we can ask for anything in his name, and so we ask, give us opportunities this week to have reflections, meditations upon this wonderful, amazing grace you give us, that we would then be able to share it with others and do these greater works to speak about the triune God who has forever changed our lives. And we pray this because he says we can. In Jesus' name, amen.